You know, one of the things uh, our family love about holiday season, I know it's Thanksgiving, in our home, one of the things our family gets excited about is eggnog, right? We, we love eggnog. As soon as there are any kind of holiday going on, the stores begin selling eggnog. And, and for those of you who are counting calories, I think we've got a picture. Do we have a picture of eggnog? Look at that. Like, doesn't that just speak invitation? Like, you want to have that? Um, if you're counting calories, eggnog's probably not for you. Uh, and if you haven't had eggnog before, it's a rich, really sweet, thick, good drink. It's really, really tasty. A couple of funny things. To kind of uh, address the over-sweetness of it, the, the high-calorie count, uh, my dear wife has often taken it upon herself to actually, you know, pour into our glasses half a cup of eggnog and half a cup of milk, thus watering down the eggnog. And then, on top of that, occasionally, by mistake, we bought eggnog light. You know, we've come home with eggnog light. And, and I gotta tell you this, uh, watered down eggnog or eggnog light shouldn't be called eggnog in any way. It's a lot less calories, but it's certainly a lot less, just period. And so, uh, our family, we've made a pact. Actually, it's just the boys. <laughs> we, we've made a pact that, hey, we'd rather drink half the amount of real eggnog than drink watered-down eggnog. Do I hear an amen from anybody? Yes. Don't mess with the eggnog, people. Better to have the real thing than to have eggnog lights. I, I, I suspect the same would true, be true when it comes to Christianity. Better to have the real thing than some light version of the Christian faith. I, I like this cartoon I came across this week. Light church, it says. Half the gospel of other churches. <laughs> and the comment is on the bottom. Attendance was way up. Morale was fantastic. Involvement had never been easier. But Pastor Tom still felt uneasy. <laughs> It's like everything you ever wanted in a church and less. Just like eggnog light, Christianity light is not everything you've ever wanted. <laughs> Christianity light, though, though it may be attractive on the surface because it is less demanding of you, it's not all that your heart is, has longed for. It doesn't fill you up with God. It doesn't fill you up with the life of God. A, a, a light version of the Christian faith doesn't connect you with the love of God or the joy or the hope or the power of God. And here's the thing, kind of a caution for us, is that, you know, Christianity light has just enough Christianity in it to inoculate you from the real thing and from the real God. Well, thank God, here comes James. <laughs> James, in our passage today, in, in James chapter 2, he comes with one of the, the, the clearest and most straightforward definitions of true Christianity there is. And he points us to the living God, and he points us to this, this living faith. And, and, and if you have a Bible this morning, we're going to look at this, look at how James defines faith this morning. So James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And uh, it's going to be on the screen, so you can take a look there if you don't. But it's great to have it on your hand, on your app, or in book form. Would you please, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? You just got comfortable, I know. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and and shudder, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May God speak to us through this very straightforward word this morning. Have a seat. In verse 14, James asks the question, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save him? And, and, and James's clear answer throughout this text is, no, it can't. <laughs> He's very upfront about this. In verse 20, he says, faith without works is useless. In, in 26, he says, faith without works is dead. I mean, tell us how you really feel, James. It's useless, it's dead, it's lifeless. A faith unaccompanied by works can't save you. It can't save you from your sins. It can't save you from your your vices. It can't uh, release you into a relationship with with God. And so James gives us a couple of examples to kind of clarify as to what real faith is. The first example makes it clear that real faith is more than just what we say. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And the scenario that James reads there, that James mentions, is a real one. I don't think this was very hypothetical on his part. We heard last week from Pastor David that that the church, the early church, was made up of a real diverse group of people, much like we have here. Uh, there were rich people for sure, but there were a lot of poor people. And, and, and we get the sense that some of the poor people were really poor. I, I don't think we could relate to their poverty. I mean, um, I sometimes have said we grew up p- poor when I was growing up, but we ate three square meals a day, didn't we, Mom? We, we, we weren't really poor. Maybe cash poor at times. But here, <laughs> broke. But, but here, you're, you're talking about a kind of poverty where somebody doesn't have clothes to wear. They don't have, have the physical necessities that they need, that, the food with which to eat. When this scenario plays out as it often does in our day, how do we react to that? Somebody shares an aid. James pictures someone saying the right needs, wishing for the person that they'd have what they need without actually doing anything, without helping them in any kind of practical way to alleviate their situation. Now, you you really can't blame the person's words here. They're saying the right thing. They pronounce 
a, a blessing on, on their poor Christian brother and sister. It's not that their words are wrong. It's that the words are a cover for neglect and, and for a, a lack of action. In James's view, words by themselves aren't enough. Let's make it real. Imagine somebody came into our gathering today who we're in community with. I'm not talking about a stranger you're meeting on the street. I'm not, I'm not talking about a panhandler who's, who's looking for a handout, where sometimes actually giving them a handout is actually hurting them. I'm talking about a, a Christian brother or a sister who you know. It's been a rough week for them. They were in a car accident on Tuesday. And their car is totaled, and for whatever reason, it's not going to be covered under insurance. And we all try to comfort our friends saying, I'm so sorry. And by the way, that's a great thing to say. We, we should be sorry. It's good. But imagine if, if some bold soul took out their purse or, or took out their wallet and started taking some bills out of their purse and said, said to the rest of us, I'm $200 sorry. How sorry are you? What James is telling us is if our, our faith is just words, it's not good enough. We can say the right thing, but unless there's evidence of, of how what we say changes the way we act, we can be deceiving ourselves again, lying to ourselves. And, and we, can, we, gotta, we can come to church every week and say the right things to each other, but that's not enough. Real faith is more than just saying the right things. James goes on to say that real faith is more than what we believe. Uh, James makes it very clear that a kind of a simple profession of faith, a, a mere claim to faith, is not real faith. It's not actual faith. Uh, anyone who's been around long enough knows that I, I really love Dallas Willard. He's one of my heroes. And uh, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he said that there are many, many so-called Christians who have what you might call barcode faith. Do you know what barcode faith is? Uh, you, know, you know what, when you go to a superstore or Safeway to a grocery store, uh, every product that you have, there's a barcode often hidden on the product so that you can't find it. We all know where, where they are now because we're going through self-serve checkouts, right? And you have to find that code to scan it. But, but say for a particular day, you actually go in and you took the sticker off a banana and you put that little sticker on, on an orange and when you actually scan it through the scanner, it would read on the register that it's a banana, but anyone observing this would say, that's no banana, that's an orange, right? And the point is, just because it's got a, the, the banana barcode on it doesn't make it a banana. Barcode faith is a kind of brand of Christianity where a decision for Christ is believed that's all to be needed, this decision kind of instantly grants the decider a full status of faith. He or she is assured that they're now a Christian. They're now right with God. They're now assured heaven without any expectation of any kind of personal transformation, without any expectation of that they'd never live up to any kind of Christian standard. You got the barcode, you're in. Well, Dallas... Willard disagrees with barcode faith, and more importantly, James disagrees with it as well. Notice what he says in verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Um, Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian, was commenting on this verse, and he was saying that demons, 
they, they, even though they're demons, they have a couple of virtues. And, and one virtue is they believe in God. In fact, demons, if you read the Bible, they, they've been to the best seminary anywhere. They've been to the throne room of God. They, they've seen God up close. Demons believe in God. And, and, and secondly, they're afraid. It says, James says, they shudder, actually, which is a little bit more than a fear. It's just kind of serious kind of fear. Why are they afraid? Because they know that good theology isn't enough. You can have that kind of belief and still not be saved, still not be freed from your sin. You can, be, you, you can believe, but still not be catapulted into a, an actual relationship with God because barcode faith can't save you. You can have all the right doctrines. You can have all the right theology. You can have all the right beliefs. It, it's important, but it is not actually evidence of real faith. How can you tell if you have real faith? Especially if, if it's not just from what you say and, and it's, if it's not from what you believe. In verse 17, you know, James says, faith by itself, faith alone is not accompanied by action, is dead. I want to just say here for a second, he's not saying faith isn't good. He's just saying faith by itself, kind of a faith as an idea by itself is not, <laughs> it's dead. Authentic faith is always going to be accompanied by action, by works. James says real faith will always result in real action. And here's the thing. As Dallas Willard uh, points out, he says, we always act on what we really believe. You know, we, we may not act on what we profess to believe, but we always act on what we really believe. In, in other words, we act on our strongest desires. We act on our strongest beliefs. Let me give you an example, and this is not highlighting anyone in particular, but say, someone might say, I was on a business trip to Toronto, and I, I, I really didn't want to do this, but the guys at the office or the guys at the work site pressured me, and, and they said, come on out to the strippers with us, come on, you, you, and, and, and I didn't want to go, but, but they pressured me, and so I went. Know what Dallas Willard would say? More than you wanted to maintain moral integrity, more than you wanted to honor your wife, you didn't want to be a fool in front of your friends. You didn't want to look foolish. That's what you wanted. That's what you believed. Your core belief or desire was you, you didn't want to look like an idiot or, or a stick in the mud in, in front of your friends, and that meant more to you than kind of maintaining your moral code. Someone might say the other day, I, I, I didn't want to, but I lied at work. I didn't want to, but my boss was pressuring me. In fact, my boss said, you know, if you don't lie in this situation, you're fired. And so I didn't want to, but I lied. Do you know what Dallas Willard would say? He'd say, your actions say that it's better to lie than lose your job. That, that saving your neck justifies lying. Willard says, we always act on our true beliefs. We may not always act on, on what we profess to believe, but we always act out on our real faith. I wonder, have you ever heard the phrase, um, you're not living up to your beliefs? It's around there a little bit. It, it can be kind of misleading if you think about it, because people really always live either up to or down to their beliefs, what they really believe. And so if your actions are not consistent with what Jesus taught, then you have to ask yourself, do you really believe his teaching? 
I think it can be a wake-up call for some of us to, to think about it that way. And so just a profession of faith, what you might call barcode faith, isn't, isn't going to save you. It can't save you. So what is real faith? James defines real faith as, as a real relationship with God that leads to real action. Faith is a, a real, real faith is a real relationship with God that leads to real action. I heard a psychologist once give this thought that, strictly speaking, none of us can actually keep a secret. We're not great secret keepers. The secret leaks out. It'll, it'll somehow bubble up in our lives some way, shape, or form in, in, in our behavior, even if we don't say it with our mouths. And what James is saying is, strictly speaking, you know, your faith won't remain a secret. If it's real, it's going to show up in your life somehow. It's going to show itself in some form of action. The action of faith that James speaks about springs out of a, a living relationship with God. And, and so I want to ask you this morning, do you, do you perhaps see faith in more barcode terms? Do you see faith as kind of a mental nod to certain propositions that have been written down somewhere? A statement of faith, maybe even. Or do you see faith as a living relationship with the God who made you? An actual relationship. Abraham is featured here in the text as a model of faith. How does James describe him in verse 23? I love this little line. And I think if Abraham could choose, he'd have this as his epitaph on his gravestone. He's described as a friend of God. Let me ask you this. Do you understand faith as friendship with God? Do you see faith as an ongoing, interactive, living, breathing friendship with God where he interacts in your life and you interact in the life of God? Do you see faith that way? When we have this kind of friendship with God, James says at least two things kind of happen, at least two. But, but first is this, you're going to become like God. I, you you got to know this. You actually become who you hang out with, who you're closest to. That's why uh, Angel and I have begun to resemble each other the longer we've been together, 30 years. We, 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 we're looking alike now, wouldn't you say? <laughs> a lot, you know? No? Oh, yeah, rub it in. She's like touching her hair and going, ah, nah, 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 nah. that's like the rich, you know, looking down on the poor, my dear. <laughs> James had lots to say about that. You, you, you tend to become who you hang out with. And, and when you develop a friendship with God, you begin to resemble God. You begin to, to look like him in, in core ways. Someone once described being a Christian as, as someone who is becoming like Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great definition? Someone who is becoming like Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, and we can kind of do a, a little introspection on this because we have a lot of information, we have a lot of raw material in the life of Jesus, how he lived and how he behaved. And we can ask ourselves: are we in our life beginning to become more like him? Especially more when it comes to a couple practices, more merciful and compassionate. I mean, James is gonna keep on cycling back to this one. He did at the end of verse, uh, I believe it was 27 of, verse, of chapter one, where he talks about pure religion, what's the first thing he mentions there? He mentions love of orphan and widow, right? He, he mentions that when it comes to favoritism in the church in the first part of chapter two, 
And James in this very passage says, if you're becoming more like Jesus, you see someone naked or hungry, and you are not going to be content to just let that go on. You're going to act on it if you have a real relationship with God. So one of the signs that that we have a a real relationship with God is, is we're becoming more loving people. If we have real faith, we can't say anymore that I'm not the loving type, you know, or love isn't my spiritual gift. It is now. It's like that uh, great red cross commercial back in the day, love, or it was blood. It's in you to give. I think Jesus would change that love. It's in you to give. If you have a, a relationship with Jesus, he's put love in you to give. I don't know about you, but I kind of been thinking about this this week. I don't want to be the kind of person with so little energy that all my energies are focused on my needs and my problems. I would love to have surplus energy in my life so that I could actually have, have enough to give and, and, and outreach beyond myself. And, and James says, Scripture says, when you connect with God, you connect with an infinite energy source. You connect with a river of love that has no end. And and when you do that, you're going to become a more loving person. James says that. He says when you trust God, you're going to become a a person who loves God in action. And to not be that type of person, and yet claiming to believe you're a Christian, is a contradiction in terms. It's like an airplane that can't fly. Or, or a car that can't drive. James says there's no such thing as a Christian without a capacity to love. Pre-Christian maybe, but not a person with a real relationship with God. A, a friend of mine once explained it this way. He, he said it's like when you accept Christ, when you come to Christ, it's like you download a file from God named love. And, and this file, we're meant to actually, you know, move our mouse over it and double-click and activate it. <laughs> That's what's meant to happen. You think, and, and if you ha- you know, maybe you're in that place where you go, I, I don't know if that's happened to me. I don't, I don't know if I have a real relationship with God. Maybe it's, it's downloaded, but it's not booting up. You need to expose yourself to someone in need, to a widow, to an orphan, to a refugee, someone who who can't pay you back for what you do, and then see what happens to your heart, to see if it boots up, if love comes alive in you. And if it does, it's a sign that you have a friendship with God. Um, John, John Wesley is kind of like uh, the EMC, the evangel- our, our tribe, uh, our patron saint. He was a minister in the, in the 18th century, hugely influential, And he believed that loving the orphan and and the widow and the poor is not just our duty, but it's actually the means that God uses to activate his love in our lives. Uh, Some Christians think that that loving the poor is, is just a duty. John Wesley and James would argue when we reach out to those who can't repay us, whoever they may be, it's a means of activating the love of God inside of us. Um. It's interesting, James, uh, in his life and ministry, wrote a lot of letters. Uh, and I'm talking old school letters. For those of you who don't know what a letter is, it's like an email, hard copy, that takes days to get where it's going, right? 
and days to get a reply. It's, it's very novel, I know, but uh, we ancients used to use such methods. But he wrote a lot of letters, and um, he had this ongoing conversation, this dialogue with this wealthy woman, Miss March. Fascinating conversations. Let me just kind of read a, a sampling of, of their dialogue back and forth uh, from his, this upper class, refined, kind of genteel woman. Wesley says to her, he says, go and see the poor and the sick in their hovels. That's an old word for home. Uh, maybe not the nicest of home. And he writes, put off that genteel woman. You bear, you bear higher character. You are an heir of God. Miss March wrote back, a Christian should not associate with people of bad taste, only of good taste and character. Sounds, sounds wise. Wesley writes, I found that many of the poor have exquisite taste and sentiment, and some of the rich have scarcely no taste at all. <laughs> but he says, if some of the poor do not have refined taste, Miss March, they have souls. So go, Miss March. Creep in among these in spite of dirt and a hundred disgusting circumstances. Do not confine your conversation to refined and elegant people. Miss March writes back, I can't be friends with poor people. Mr. Wesley writes, Miss March, I'm not asking to become friends with them, with the poor. I'm asking you to visit the poor. Visit the poor, the sick, the fatherless in their affliction. It is true that they are not pleasing to your flesh and blood and may shock the delicacy of your nature. Real sensitive there. But listen to this. But the birthing that follows your labor of love will more than balance the cross you bear. Still, Miss March refuses to go, and Wesley writes how he feels that, that her refusal will result in the stunting of her soul. Wesley implores Miss March to visit the poor, not because it's her duty, not because the, the poor are, are going to incredibly benefit from her generosity. But he knew that if Miss March went to visit the poor, the widow, the orphan, the love that might be inside her would be activated. It would be double-clicked. And what James is, is saying in, in, in James chapter 2, we've got to reach out to those beyond who can repay us. Reach out beyond ourselves because God can use that to activate the love file that he's placed in us that's been there that's as a result of his friendship with us. Being connected to the source of love, to God himself, enables us to love. Second thing James says in this passage is that a real faith, a faith that enables us to love, even when it involves risk, is the conviction that God is in us and that God will come through for us. Now look again at, at verse 21. As I said before, James features Abraham as this kind of great model of faith. James says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did by offering his son Isaac on the altar? Think about that for a moment. Isn't that crazy? Uh, what would that would have meant for Abraham? Here's dad Abraham. My, son, uh, my sons often call me Pops. And so I, I can imagine Isaac calling him Pops. Hey, Pops. And, and this, was, this was a son, Abraham and Sarah's firstborn, that they'd waited for years. They'd been, they, they, they were infertile and couldn't bear children for the longest time. And finally, God gives them this boy. And so <laughs> Isaac is the focus of so much love and affection, his beloved Isaac, so much so that, you know, he would take him to the camel races. 
And, 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 and at night, you know, when it was dark, he'd say to, you know, the boy, don't tell your mother, and they'd go out and he'd teach him how to, you know, do sheep tipping, things like that. <laughs> Talk to him about the birds and the bees, those kind of things. <laughs> this was his chosen special son. I, I, when I think about this, uh, I often get choked up. On Friday night, um, last year, some of you would know that I was able to, to walk a portion of the El Camino pilgrimage in Spain. And, uh, and so this last week, uh, Friday night, my mom's in town. I wanted her to get a taste of what it was like for me. And so we watched the film, The Way. And uh, I got to tell you, I wept through the entire film. My mom was sitting beside me. I think she was thinking, what's wrong with my boy? <laughs> Move to the West Coast. He's got all flaky or something. I don't know. Right, mother? No? I love how she just sits there silently and takes whatever I dish out. This is beautiful. I wish that was all the women in my life would do that. No, sorry. Did I say that? I didn't say that out loud, did I? Happy Thanksgiving, Derwin. You'll be eating alone. Um, but the, the film, what's particularly poignant about the film is that uh, features the dad who uh, isn't really close with his son, but he hears that his, his son has been killed on the first day of the Camino pilgrimage, and caught in a storm, and he goes over initially to, to claim his son's remains and uh, ends up walking the Camino. And, uh, and I, I remember saying in that moment, I can't imagine what that would be like to lose my boy. And I think of Abraham. I think where God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to me. And a little bit of context here, this, was a, this is not a common practice biblically, but it was a common practice in that day, in ancient days. Uh, not for the people of Israel, but in the, the surrounding area, the, the pagan peoples of that day. They often believed that, that they would make an offering of their firstborn child as a, an offering to God to, to, uh, to show their devotion. And, uh, and here's... Here's Abraham, so he's not, it's not a foreign concept to him that God's asking him to do this. And so he makes this three-day trek. You know, I think about how long that journey would have seemed. Far too short, probably, to Mount Moriah. He, uh, he builds an altar with stones, and he, he puts wood on the altar, and uh, he ties his boy to the altar, and he lifts the knife and, he, and he's, he's willing to sacrifice his one and only son. And think, thankfully, we know the story. God stops him from, from sacrificing his son. That's an important part of the story, by the way. But still, what enabled Abraham to get to that point and to do that, to be willing to do that? You know, we find the answer in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, now according to the text, what enabled Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his only son, it says that he reasoned that God was able to raise his son from the dead. 
You see, Abraham knew that he was friends with God, and even if he went through with it, even though it was a a seeming tragedy in his life, he trusted enough that God would see him through, that God would come through for him. And when you know, when when you've discovered God as your friend, this this real relationship of trust, you you, you discover that he's good and that he cares for us, and, and you become to believe that he will come through for you, it gives you the the courage to be able to step out in faith even when it's risky, even when it seems dangerous. James uses another seemingly unlikely example of faith in this passage. I love it because Abraham is kind of like the patron saint, right? He's this, we look to him, we look up to Abraham. And, and just in case that, James says, well, I want to tell you about Rahab. Celebrate her faith. You know who Rahab was? She was a prostitute in, in Canaan. It says here she, she demonstrated faith by putting her life on the line by housing these Jewish spies. What, what would lead Rahab the prostitute to risk doing this? Somehow she had the conviction that God could and that God would come through for her, that he'd provide for her. And when, when you know in your heart of hearts that God will provide for you, you can step out and you can take risks and you can love. Because love, uh, folks, Let's be real for a moment. Love is often risky. Love is often, love is often hard. Brené Brown talks about love. She says it's like blood spilt on the ground. You know, most, most love involves some sort of costliness to it. She actually celebrates. She actually points to the Christian version of love because she says there's blood spilt on the ground. That's how costly love is. But we can love. We can do that because we know that God will be there for us. I want to, I want to close with an example of someone who, who's been an example of faith to many. Hudson Taylor. Uh, he was famous for being this pioneer missionary in China. Uh, Hudson Taylor, who, who's kind of famous today, was in many ways an ordinary guy. He had ordinary struggles. Like, like he, he often wanted to quit. He was discouraged regularly. He was lonely. He had, had doubts But as a young man, he wanted to develop a a real friendship with God, and and he sensed that God was calling him to go to China, to to bring God's message to the Chinese. And he wanted to learn how to trust God, and who who was his friend. And and so let me give you just a a couple of brief stories of his life. Hudson Taylor had a very forgetful boss. Forgetful and cheap, which apparently is a very, you know, not a good combination. And, and Hudson had an interesting, he kind of made an interesting pact with God. He, he said, I'm never going to remind my boss that it's payday. Uh, because he, he reasoned that when I go to China as a missionary, I, I, I'm not going to have a boss. I'm only going to have God to rely on. So he never told his dog, boss. He, he trusted God for every paycheck, which was uncertain. And he was really poor. Uh, he, he started his life out as a medical assistant, making hardly any money, barely making ends meet. And he was concerned that he didn't have enough money to give to God's work. And so he decided he'd actually, you know, move into someplace cheaper. He, he moved from a, like, imagine like a one-bedroom suite to a, a rooming house kind of scenario so that he could give the surplus that he saved to God's work. He wanted to honor and, and trust God with his finances. So as a young, young man, uh, Hudson lived a very poor, very lean life. And one day he's walking through a, a town square in England, and he, and he comes across, he, he describes seeing this family. 
You know, the father had, had sunken cheeks and, and, and was very dirty in God. And, and the mother was, was holding a baby who was, who was thin and, and, and grubby, along with several other kids. And, and as Hudson's walking past this, this family, the father walks up to, to Hudson and says, for God's sake, would you please help us? And Hudson says all he had to his name was a half a crown, which was just a few shillings, not very much, actually. He, he didn't want to give his, his last coin, his last half crown to the stranger, but reluctantly he reaches into his pocket and he pulls it out and he, 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 he walks home. Taylor gets home and, and all he has to eat, the only thing in his house was a bowl of gruel. I don't know what gruel is, but it's like watered-down porridge. It's like a really bad version of eggnog. Hudson sits down to this bowl of gruel, and he says he feels like a prince. He feels like a prince. He goes to bed. He doesn't have a dime to his name. And and the next morning, he gets up. He doesn't know what he's going to have for breakfast. And his his landlady comes to him with an envelope, and and he doesn't know who it's from. And he opens the envelope, and out falls a 10-shilling note. And Hudson Taylor says, praise God, my 24-hour investment netted me 400%. My brothers and my sisters and my friends, the life of faith, the life of hope, and the life of love is not a duty. It's simply the result of being friends with God. (laughs) The life of faith, it's not a duty. It's the greatest life in the world. And I couldn't wish anything more for you this morning than that. Would you bow your heads with me and let's just take a few moments to reflect and to pray. Just trust that God's been speaking to each of us today. And I I wonder for some of you, maybe at some point in your journey, you've kind of said yes to God, but that's kind of where it stopped. It was kind of a yes to God. You you prayed a prayer, you you, you know, you went through some sort of uh, religious moment. But somehow, if, you, if you're honest, you, don't, you, you couldn't be sure that you have a real faith, a, a real friendship with God. And I, I sense God wanting to say this morning, he wants more for you than that. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to, to step into a, a life-giving relationship with him that's going to rock your world and change the trajectory of how you live It'll it'll change how you deal with your money and your resources and your time and your talents. It's going to mean that when you come across a need, you're not going to be able to just turn the other way. God's going to sometimes tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to reach out there. I want you to love there. I want you to go there. God still does that with people. Since he wants to do that with some of us this morning, to turn what's been maybe an idea, a belief. Uh, you know, guys, we can believe that God is good. We can believe that God is real. But if it doesn't change the way we live, we haven't got it yet. And that, that ought to lead us to some soul searching. And so God, this morning, I want to thank you that what you offer us is not a life of religion or duty. You offer us this friendship with you.
And I pray for your people here this morning that that life of faith would become more and more real. (laughs) That it wouldn't be just ideas in our heads or things we say. But it would be kind of the kind of conviction uh, and, and love with which we actually change the world by just being there. That it'll leak out of us in all kinds of ways. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our work, in our city, and across the world. Use us, Lord. Ignite that love that's in us, Lord, that we might actually share it with all who come our way. I pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. We wanted to live, leave you with a symbol this morning. So it's going to be a brief lived symbol that uh, might remind you of this message. And so we actually brought in some real eggnog today. <laughs> yes, we did. Because you probably aren't consuming enough calories this weekend. And so we thought we'd give you a little bit more. And uh, first service, they were, they were dueling it out in like half cup sizes. This service, we've instructed them, you know, actually, you can help yourself and drink as much as you'd like but not too much, it might make you sick. But I'd offer this benediction to you this morning, that God would just give you grace to not accept cheap imitations of faith. Uh, That you wouldn't settle for Christianity light. It it won't satisfy you. (laughs) And God says, I have something so much better, so much richer and sweeter for you than you ever dreamed or imagined. Come on with me for th- to get in on that. May you have courage to listen to that invitation today and to follow it where it leads. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.